0: Everybody has gone through the material that we've gone this far. Uh, We got into the text entirely uh, last time, and uh, basically what we did uh, was to correlate a number of passages in Revelation with passages in the Gospels, specifically Matthew 24, that we had already established as referring to the destruction of Jerusalem and so we correlated all those passages. Also, we've already shown that the figurative language that you uh, see in Revelation was used uh, in those passages that are obvious, destruction of Jerusalem earlier, and that also the the language, just like, for example, I'm at the 13th chapter of Revelation, if you'd like to turn there now. Uh, The language that's used all through was used uh, by the prophets of the Old Testament whenever it spoke in judgment of other countries. Uh, for example you're you, you, you read about the, the beast and the leopard and the bear and the lion and, and all these various symbols and if you go back to Daniel uh, you can read about the, those world empires and you can see uh, uh, those various symbols used for example uh, the bear, one time, is Medo Persia. Uh, another time, Medo Persia is a ram with two horns. And you don't have to guess at the interpretation, it's there. Uh, Greece depicted as a, a he goat. Uh, then we have this ferocious beast uh, as that fourth world empire. But uh, the leopard uh, depicted Alexander the Great. And so, all of these, this way of looking at rulers and, and countries. Uh, was used in the Old Testament by the prophets, and by the way the prophets didn't invent it. Uh, it was a type of speech that was used in the vernacular of that day. Also we've established that this, what we have in Revelation is not just um, highly symbolic language, it is apocalyptic language, uh, it is language that is specifically not being specific. Uh, it is a revealing or an unfolding and wanting you to understand Uh, but it's written at a time when, uh, when the people that are involved and are suffering the persecution and are communicating with one another are in a situation that calling names and spelling everything exactly out could very well make life even harder than it is. And if you were writing at the time of Nero and wanted to say a few things about Nero. You probably wouldn't want to call his name any more than if you lived in the time of Hitler or or Saddam Hussein or or any people like that. And again, this was not invented by the writers of the Bible. Uh, This was characteristic. You can go back through history and duplicate this kind of thing any number of times where people who are oppressed and are under a dictatorship. Uh, that they will work out languages that are highly figurative uh, to express themselves uh, in this period of time, and this is what we have all through this book. Uh, We've noted that um, we have done everything to put it in its time frame. Uh, We've noted that uh, don't even attempt to interpret figurative language until you put it in its time frame, because, as we've noted here, you're talking about judgment-type language, and, and you can uh, apply it in, in a number of ways, if, if you want to. So the time frame is important. and So we've got it uh, in its time frame, and we've established that. Now as we finish this up, uh, beginning with the 13th chapter tonight, uh, we have, uh, pretty in an overall view, covered uh, through the first 12 chapters. Uh, and as we finish it up, remember that uh, don't go to it with the attitude that you're going to be absolutely 100% positive about every single word in every figurative statement that's made. Uh, You're not. And it's not because that it's written in such a way that you specifically cannot. The initial, initial recipients of this letter could. They lived in that period of history. And they knew exactly what was going on, and they could see what was over the horizon And they were experienced in that. Uh, This is their culture, their language, their time. And they would relate to this with no problem whatsoever, just as easily as you and I today. uh, Somebody can, well, to give you an example of how we do it, uh, in our papers, uh, most of us, well, maybe I shouldn't say most, I do, and some of you do, I enjoy political cartoons. And uh, in political cartoons, if you don't, can you imagine going to a political cartoon if you don't keep up with the news? You you, you really couldn't understand it. Uh, but if you keep up with the political car- with the news, then political cartoons you can just understand perfectly and see all that's being said in there. And for example, uh, uh, a few years back, you could see uh, the eagle and the bear going at it tooth and nail, and nobody had to say anything. You know, you knew exactly what was what was happening and this is they still have cartoons on a regular basis about the things going on. Well, can you imagine somebody that's not in tune to the political situation trying to interpret that cartoon? There's just no way. Uh, if you're not into sports, you couldn't go to the sports section and, and sit down and, and understand it all. You'd read the words, but there is a certain slang and a certain diction that's used in sports, and, and if you're not into it at least a little bit, uh, you don't. What is a birdie? You say. What are we talking about when we say that that was a birdie? Uh, you know. You know that or, or what are we talking about on hitting into a sand trap and things of that nature? Unless you're into that particular sport at little at least a little bit, you don't you don't know what they're talking about. So I'm saying don't don't expect that. But what you can expect is to get an overall understanding of the essential thing. Uh, you can understand what's going on, and you can get an overall understanding. And you don't need to even get bogged down or worried about the fact that you don't understand every single word. Now, that isn't to say that you shouldn't keep the shooting for that. I really believe even now, if any one of us had the time to sit back and still do more research and more study on the history and the language at this time, you would find that you kept feeling more and more comfortable with it. And so if I go through Revelations again in a study, uh, three or four years from now, I would expect to do a better job uh, if I have done continued to do some reading uh, in archaeology and history and dealing with the culture and all at, at this time. Okay, um, we culminated and we noted in the 11th chapter that we were dealing with this uh, city where the Lord was crucified that is being spiritually called uh, Sodom and Egypt, I believe that's used obvious uh, Jerusalem, we ask the question of uh, those that would apply it in some other way, uh, like the 96 AD, how do they get around that in the 11th chapter? Uh, well when I went back and read and I found out that the way they get around that, uh, the, the number one way they get is they say well that was said before 70 AD and it did apply uh, to the destruction of Jerusalem and all. But then in 96, when Revelation is written, that particular statement was incorporated in there. That doesn't really make sense to me. Uh, if I believed it in that way, it, uh, the inspiration itself, uh, what I'd have a problem with the, with the validity there. It seems that, that that comes across to me as just trying to come up with some explanation as to how you can have something so plain and still try to hold on to a date such as 96 AD. In fact, that's one of the things that bothers me with the, the people that write on that is that uh, they they more than anything come across to me as trying to prove that point rather than just deal with the information. Okay, then in the 12th chapter we have this uh, a woman uh, and we have uh, people being persecuted uh, during this period of time. Uh, You've got uh, a woman, verse 1, clothed with the sun, the moon, 12 stars. She's pregnant, cries out in pain, about to give birth. Uh, Then another sign appeared in the heaven, enormous red dragon, seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns. His tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth. He might devour her child the moment it was born. Uh, She gave birth to a son, a male child who would rule all the nations. And her child was snatched up to God in in the throne. The woman fled into the desert place, uh, prepared for her God uh, where she might take refuge. We looked at that. Uh, We noted that uh, obviously the woman here is the the people of God. We noted the statements were that uh, uh, the people of God were told to flee out of Jerusalem and in that area whenever the Roman armies came We went back and looked at Josephus and another historical record uh, Eusebius uh, showing that that is exactly what happened that the siege was lifted for a short period of time and the result is the people of God believing in the Lord got up and, and got out of there um, We uh, come on through, by the way, to, to get a definition itself of, uh, of the dragon and, and what's being impersonated here. If you turn over to uh, Revelation 20 uh, verse 2 it says uh, he sees the dragon the ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan and bound him a thousand years. So obviously the writer is uh, will use the dragon uh, referring to the, uh, the ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and so we're talking about the same entity, or the, the serpent or the, uh, the devil or, or the dragon, but also that the writer will take, uh, whenever there is a force on this earth doing the work of Satan uh, and opposing God, then it will use that term uh, personified in that person. And we, know, we noted, for example, Jesus said to Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Uh, that, uh, and you read about Satan coming into uh, Judas uh, before he went out and, and betrayed the Lord. Uh, you read about uh, the emperor of Babylon uh, in the Old Testament uh, personified in that way. And so that, uh, that someone doing the work, uh, Jesus referred to the Jews in terms of You are of your father, the devil in the 8th chapter of John. He's a liar, you're a liar like him. He's your, he's your father, not God. And so that uh, that the force itself sometimes is speaking literally, like of the devil, and then sometimes it's, it's speaking of a force that is doing the work of the adversary of God and therefore could represent the devil personified, uh, just as God is sometimes used in the same way. Okay, now in the 13th chapter, We have this beast coming up out of the sea. Uh, He's got ten horns and seven heads. And he said he resembled a leopard, had feet like a bear, mouth like that of a lion. Uh, The the dragon gave the beast uh, his power and his throne and great authority. And, And one of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound. Now there's several possibilities here on interpretation. Uh, you've already seen, for example, in Revelation 20, where the, the dragon is used to refer to the serpent of the devil or Satan himself. And uh, remember the Satan when you have the temptation of Jesus, and, and Satan offered him says, you know, fall down and worship me, and I'll give you all of this, all the kingdoms of the earth. In other words, that this was in with it was in his power. Uh, one interpretation is uh, is this kind of authority the uh, being actually uh, given to Rome. Uh, another is that uh, that it, a possible thing is uh, Rome itself given the authority to uh, the emperor uh, in, in Nero. Either one would be a possibility there. Uh, you just simply know it is. It is representing a force here on this earth. You know the strong force is Rome. You know that Nero's on the throne. And it and it is representing this force uh, that is persecuting the, the Christians. Okay, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have a, a fatal wound. But the fatal wound had been healed. Uh, all the ones I read on this who put this at this time point out that... Uh, at this time, there is a lot of dissension within Rome. Uh, in fact, right after Nero's death in 68, you will have three emperors within 18 months. Uh, Nero commits suicide, and then each of these three emperors will go to their death before Vespasian uh, solidifies. And so that uh, uh, there was a time when things looked very shaky to Rome, uh, but then Rome uh, got it together again and became a very, the same favorable, formable, uh, united force. Um, the beast was given, in verse 5, uh, a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemous, uh, blasphemies and exercise his authority for 42 months. He opened the mouth to blaspheme God, to slander his name and his dwelling place. Uh, by the way, they, all the writers point out that uh, from the time that Rome uh, entered Israel, Uh, in Judea and declared war, that there was three and a half years involved in that conflict before it culminated in in 70 AD, 42 months or three and a half years. He opened his mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name, his dwelling place and those who live in heaven. By the way, when he talks about even slandering God and all, keep in mind that all peoples at this time are religious and the pagans have their idols and their gods. And whenever a, a pagan nation was victorious, they attributed that source to their god. And they also attributed it, uh, inferiority uh, to the other god. And for ex- you read statements in the Old Testament where when the, the Jews, for example, beat the Palestinians uh, in the mountains, they would make the statement, their god is a god of the mountains, ours is a god of the valleys. You know, we'll get them down the valleys and whip them, is what, what they were saying. And so, when you were fight, if you had been fighting then in Rome, you had your gods and your idols. In fact, the, the emperor was actually deified to you and, and put on an equal basis with uh, one of the gods. Well, when you went into battle, there was a lot of cursing of the god of the opposing force. You, you curse them and you curse their gods. Uh, remember the, the conflict that took place with David and Goliath and how that he would come out and curse the Israelites and curse their God, and how upset uh, that David got when he heard that. And so when the Romans go to battle or whoever, you were not only cursing the other people, but uh, you were cursing and, and mocking their gods. Uh, he was given power to make war against the saints, to conquer them, given authority over, the, over an authority over every tribe, people, language, nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast all whose names had not been written in the book of life. Well, the, the beast was in charge. And Rome ruled. And all the civilized world was controlled by Rome. Uh, and Rome is epitomized. in the, uh, the emperor himself, the emperor has been set up, in fact, again, nothing unusual to set the emperor up as deity. Uh, the pharaohs were set up as, as deity in Egypt. And all through the centuries. Uh, remember even with Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, how he got a pretty high head and wanted a big image set up and everything, and then went out and set out to boast about all the things that he did before God, God had humbled him. Okay, then uh, it says in the latter part of verse 10, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of the saints. And so while the beast is, is tackling Israel, keep in mind there's two things going on now. On the one hand, they're going to war with Israel. And this war will last from 60, about halfway through 66 up to 70 AD. By the same token, the persecution of Christians started uh, in 64 by Nero. And so during this period of time of 64 to 66 in that area, is when the Apostle Paul and Peter both go to their death. And so during this period of time, uh, Rome is, is going sock to socket uh, to both uh, Israel and uh, the uh, Christians, and it's going to call for patient endurance on the part. And the Christians are also getting it from the Jews. Uh, and remember, for a while, in, uh, in earlier in Revelation, you've had the woman riding the beast. In other words, the, the woman there uh, using the harlot, uh, the prostitute, uh, uses the beast. And, and then the beast turns on the harlot. And we've noted that uh, how that uh, uh, Israel used Rome against the Christians. And then, of course, Rome would turn against Israel. Okay, then he sees another beast. Verse 11. So this first beast, notice, come up out of the sea. And he come up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb, but he spoke like a dragon. And so, in other words, he's deceiving. On the one hand, he's, he's representing himself like a lamb, but, it's, but he's really the devil. Well, the, uh, the persecuting force, the Jews, on the one hand, were, were saying, hey, we're the people of God. We're the servants of Jehovah. And they were setting themselves up as representing Jehovah to the people, but really they weren't representing Jehovah they were representing the devil, weren't they? Remember what the Revelation writer said in, in both the second and third chapter? He said that uh, they call themselves Jews, but really they're a synagogue of Satan, in Revelation 2, 9 and 10, and Revelation 3, 9 and 10. And so uh, deceiving in that they are, on the one hand, representing themselves as something that's pure and innocent and good and representatives of God, but really, the truth is, they're they're representing the devil. Okay, uh They perform uh, great and miraculous signs, even causing fire to come down from heaven and earth, etc. Hold your place here and flip over here to uh, 2 Thessalonians where he talks about the Antichrist. Remember earlier, we've already dealt with Thessalonians and the dating there and all the events that take place. Uh, 2 Thessalonians and uh, Let's see, past it. Chapter 2 and uh, 1 through uh, 10. Uh, Mark, would you read that, please, those 10 verses?
1: Okay. Concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered to him. We ask you, brothers, not to become easily unsettled or alarmed by some prophecy, report, or letter supposed to have come from us, saying that the day of the Lord has already come. Don't let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. Don't you remember that when I was with you I used to tell you these things? And now you know that what is holding him back and now you know what is holding him back so that he may be revealed at the proper time. For the secret power of lawlessness is already at work, but the one who now holds it back will continue to do so till he is taken out of the way, and when the lawless one and then the lawless one will be revealed, and the Lord Jesus will overthrow with the breath of his mouth. And destroyed by the splendor of his coming the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with the work of satan displayed in all kinds of counterfeit miracles signs and wonders and every sort of evil that deceives those who are perishing they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be
0: saved. Okay, now we already noted that the judgment that he's talking about here is one that you could be deceived on by a letter. In other words, somebody could actually deceive you that it was already in the process of taking place or or almost immediately to take place. And so he says don't be deceived uh, by that. It hadn't taken place, so obviously it's not the end of the world. All right. Paul writes this uh, somewhere around 58 A.D. Uh, Nero has come on the throne in 54 A.D the severe persecution of Christians will not start in about 64. And Paul is actually letting them know that it's, it's not quite ready yet. It's still a little bit before it happens. But notice now when he talked about the miracles and all, he calls it counterfeit miracles. In other words, that uh, there's going to be things uh, uh, that are done where power is attributed as from God. And by the way, this was very common at this time. Uh, remember Simon the sorcerer uh, who was converted and how he used to wow the people with his magical arts and establish him as some special spokesman from God. And then when he saw Philip, he realized that, hey, and everybody else saw that there was a difference between him and Philip. And remember, he wanted to buy the power that uh, Philip had and he was rebuked. And of course, Simon in that context was, uh, we read of his conversion. But the point is that this idea of, of, doing all kinds of various things. Uh, I don't believe that you could go so far back in written history that you don't find it. Uh, remember Moses when he went to before Pharaoh and right away the magicians were called in and they duplicated the first several things that he did or at least appeared uh, to duplicate it. All religious bodies of antiquity, they're, they're, uh uh people that were the holy people had various things that they did to try and attract, uh, attribute miraculous powers to them. It may have been the the Indian witch doctor who danced for rain, you know, and then whenever it rained, he, he took credit for it. Sooner or later, it's going to rain, and he just danced until it did, and when it did, he took credit for it. Well, that's right. He did. Uh, the miracle worker today, you, he comes to the hospital, most people get well and go home. You know, most of us don't die. And so he comes and he prays for you and he lays hands and when you go home he takes credit for it. And Oral Roberts has had a lot of healings like that. And then you write him and thank him. But, and so I'm saying that these people did those kinds of, of things then. But I want to, what I was noticing is the parallel between this and what you're reading over there. You have a force uh, depicting itself as one that is of God and it's right, but it really it's of the Satan. And, and the so-called miraculous is just counterfeit. In other words, there are people being deceived about it. And and we have this uh, lawless one of perdition that is going to come on the scene, uh, the Antichrist, and who's going to try and stamp out Christianity. So it, it parallels, and also with uh, uh, you know, a certain amount of symbolic language, uh, the same type of material that you're reading over here. Uh, let's see. Uh,
2: is that man of lawlessness? I mean, you have idea who
0: that is I mean is that Nero or is that the Jews well I believe uh, Nero is the one that um, that Paul was the one that was see he was the one that really began the intense uh, persecution you know of Christians at this point Uh, the one thing you can tell for sure it's a persecuting force uh, that is uh, is doing it I mean a strong persecuting force that's doing it and you have two beasts, one from the sea, uh, that, that represents all the power of the earth, and then you have this uh, land beast, and uh, let's see where it comes on down verse verse, uh, he had two arms, he exercised all the authority of the first beast on his behalf, in other words this land beast gets his power from the other, and he made the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Who is fatal, and he performed great signs, and he deceived the inhabitants of the earth. Yeah, I'm saying the uh, the uh, the first there uh, coming out of the sea and all, uh, and the was the, and the the emperor and Rome. And then we have uh, the. In other words, you're, you're simply looking at it from the standpoint of of a- asking yourself the question: Who are the persecuting forces against Christians at this time? And so you have Nero and the Roman government, and then you have the Jews. And the Jews depend on Rome. They really can't do anything. They couldn't kill Jesus without Rome. And remember, they wanted to kill Paul, and they couldn't do that without Rome either. And you have you have them depended entirely on Rome. Um, in the 14th uh, chapter... Uh, come over to the about the 7th verse, uh, it speaks of the angel flying, he says, uh, he's heard in a loud voice, fear God, give him glory, because the hour of judgment has come, worship him who made the heavens, etc. Then it says, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink of her maddening wine and her adulteries. All right, of this Babylon the great, uh, remember we've all, we'll deal with it again in the 18th chapter, When you finally have it, look at 18 and verse 2. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Her adulteries in verse 3. Verse 4. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you do not receive her plagues for her sins. In other words, the Christians, get out of there. God's going to punish this place. Uh, Verse 6. Pay her back double for what she has done. Uh, Then... Uh, on down to verse 10. Woe, woe, great city, O oh Babylon, city of power. In one hour, your doom is come. All right, who is this then? This Babylon in verse uh, 19, latter part, in one hour, she's been brought to ruin. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints, apostles, and prophets. God has judged her for the way she treated you. Okay, remember the statement of Jesus that all the blood of the righteous people have been shed on earth from Abel to Zechariah but required on that generation when he spoke in Matthew 23 uh, verses 29 through 39. And so rejoice over her. Uh, God has now passed judgment. Now remember also when you read this judgment on Babylon and her fall and her fall coming in one hour. And notice now the reason for her fall was what she done to the prophets and the apostles uh, and, and the disciples. Uh, Rome, we remem- remember when we, uh, in the material we've already given, when did Rome fall? Was there ever, okay, four, about 476? Was there ever just a judgment day when Rome had this big battle and lost? We Remember we, in fact, one of the materials I copied and gave to you from the history of mankind that Rome gradually deteriorated over a period of years. In fact, Christianity actually became the official religion of the Roman Empire at a time when Rome was still strong in uh, in the fourth century. And so Christian Christianity for over a century had been the official religion of the Roman Empire before that empire just gradually deteriorated and, and went by the wayside. But there never was a one judgment day for Rome or any big one big battle or, or anything of that nature. And and Rome, keep in mind, is going to be a great country all the way over for another four hundred another four hundred years or so. Okay. Uh, uh, so Babylon, he identifies there. It's been,
2: pretty much as being the Jews,
0: right? Yeah. That's mine. Jerusalem. Because of the right.
2: in June. he addresses it. Because it's uh, the British same place church, seven that.
0: Churches. Right, same place in, uh, in Revelation 11. It's, it's the place where the Lord is crucified, which spiritually, it said, is being called Sodom and Egypt. In other words, uh, uh, Jerusalem is identified with Sodom and Egypt and Babylon in Revelation. And all of them have one thing in common, and they were cities that, that God had judged.
2: And it says God has judged her for the way she treated you. Right. And, and
0: He's running for the churches. So right. It does, mate. Right. So. Well, once it's put before 70 AD, keep in mind there's not even any debate on that. The fact that uh, Babylon is Jerusalem, the fact that the beast is Rome, uh, the one that uh, the, the second land beast is, is the Jews, uh, the fact that uh, back there, the harlot riding the beast is is uh, Judaism using Rome, once the date is established, there's nobody that even questions that. In other words, that's, uh, it, it fits the picture perfectly, you know, at that, at that point. Uh, if you're going to move that up to 96, I've never read anything that, in fact, I, I guess that uh, when I first began to read on this other, its appeal initially came to me from the standpoint it was the only thing I'd read that made sense, that I just simply never... Uh, and then of course remember again from the documents that I've handed out, uh, all of this talk about persecution under Domitian is just that, it's talk, there's just no evidence for it. There is not a shred of evidence that one single solitary person was killed under Domitian, that most of this talk goes back to a 5th century Christian writer. Uh, who in the opinion of all the modern the modern scholars of today grossly exaggerated some materials that was handed to him. But you cannot go back to those first and second century documents and come up with some information where Domitian uh, was this person that went around killing Christians or, or assaulting them in any way. That simply was not the case. Uh, okay, over here in the uh, Mm.
2: Were you gonna hit on that six six
0: six? Okay. The again, <coughs> so far as the, the number itself, there there's several different ones that have dealt with it. Arriving, in other words, uh, that if you wanna, you know, people in that put, put it in ninety six, uh, try to come up with Domitian. Uh, the others in, in lily you you've got different languages you can use. You've got Latin, and you've got uh, uh, Greek, and you've got Hebrew. So obviously you've got a potential for different things. So if it is before 70 AD, then there's no question. They can call it 666 or 555 or 321 or whatever it is. There's only one person there, and that's Nero. Uh, that, that's it. There's only one there. Now, already remember, I can't remember, Mark, if he was here last time or the time before, but I give the doc, we read the document where uh, even at this time, uh, Nero's name was being put in code and was circulated, even, in other words, even among the pagans,
2: yeah. they, have,
0: they had worked it out and, 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 and had applied it to him, and so far as uh, this cryptology which is the use of, of letters like this 666 uh, in order to work out a code for names, was apparently a common practice at that day. Now, Wallace goes into it. You, do you have access to Wallace's book? All right. He goes into it in detail as far as given the history and everything behind it. But
2: well, I was just, I mean, there's two beasts, and then he says the mark of the beast 666. Yeah. You know, then you're saying which?
0: <laughs> well, the the beast. So uh, uh, the
2: first beast, the sea beast.
0: The the really the big is that the first one that comes on the the scene, and the other is actually using him, uh, and then and and then doing things himself.
1: That's what I was wondering. Well, uh, when Rome, or when uh, in 64, Rome burned, right? Right. Do you think that could be the the wound? Because it looked like Nero was losing control of Rome at that point in time. There's a possibility. And
0: that's, that's exactly
1: right. And then he started a persecution on the Christians, right? Mm-hmm. Well, the Jews right. hadn't rebelled against him.
0: In fact, uh, at the time that Rome burned, and and then he began to look for a scapegoat, Nero's position was very shaky. There were a lot of very angry right. people at that point. There's, there's, you're, you're exactly right. That's well, he possibility. started the
1: persecution of the Christians mm-hmm. at that point. Right. And the Jews were still persecuting. Right. The Jews had never let up. So, so from 64 until the Jews go to war, until they rebelled against Rome, they're, the, the Rome Romans and the Jews both right. are together for that mm-hmm. period of time. They've teamed up and they're persecuting the Christians. Right. Okay.
0: And see where it's hard to zero in exactly is, in other words, was Revelation written, 64, 65, are 67 and 68 and that's where if it was written in a 64 65 you're exactly right that would uh, there's uh, no other way that, I, that uh, and th- and it fits it perfectly. perfect mm-hmm. but then see the in fact the thing you brought up mark is is what brings those two dates in 64 65 or 67 68 because you, you actually look for a situation where you have something that would fit that and so you go back there and you do have, at 64, when Rome burns, uh, the people were infuriated at Nero because he had been petitioning the Senate wanting to rebuild a lot of things and really do it in. Of course, so that means mean heavy taxes for everybody. And they didn't go along with him. Well, so then when the fire started and it got out of hand, you know, I don't believe that Nero intended for that much of the city to burn. It got out of hand, and so it's like you go out here and you start a fire tend to scare somebody, and it gets out of hand, and you're burning the whole place up. And so now you're scared. And so Nero was scared, and so he he looked for a scapegoat, and he found it in the Christians. And so it fits it perfect. Well, then up here at 68, Nero commits suicide. Uh, And then you go through uh, three emperors within a year and a half, and then Vespasian comes on the scene and solidifies it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and really, in my judgment on there, the I believe there is a weightier argument for 64 or 65. That's
2: what Wallace mm-hmm. puts it in.
0: Uh-huh. Yeah, I believe it's weightier. But I'm saying the other way, you'll find it both ways. And, and in, uh, it was good you brought that up, Mark. Whichever way you went on that would be either whether 64 or, or the other. And again, we see the importance that before you can be, your exactness is definitely limited by the time, even down to the a few years there, mm-hmm. uh, and and even though you can see the overall picture, uh, you to be more exact, you have to zero in. But no, I agree that uh, the uh, Albright now puts it up around you know sixty seven, sixty eight. William Albright, and he's an outstanding scholar. Uh, personally, I I I, I believe. What Wallace is going on is he's simply saying that the internal evidence in his judgment favors that better. You know, I, I agree on that. that. was good you brought that up, Mark. Um, and by the way, for the futurist uh, that takes revelation in the future, what they actually have, and, and uh, Adams J. Adams is a Presbyterian and who comes from a premillennial background, and who arrived at the conclusion that all of this applied to the destruction of Jerusalem, the downfall of uh, Judaism, and let's see if I've got, uh, uh, here's his statement. What they have, they have to have Israel being rebuilt, and the temple being rebuilt, and Rome becoming a power again, or something that is like Rome was then, and then the Lord coming back. And here's his comment on that. He says, how artificial to suppose that at a time yet future, a revived Roman Empire will again destroy a restored and rebuilt Jewish temple exactly as in 70 AD. In other words, what they're saying is, do you see what they're saying? They're saying that this description perfectly fits what took place in 70 AD. But we believe in premillennialism. So what was really gonna happen is that uh, Israel will be rebuilt, the temple will be rebuilt, and either Rome are a power that is one of the descendants of Rome. Uh, for example, maybe Russia, it may be Saddam, you know, but something that would be a world power like Rome, that will all come, and they will go to war uh, against uh, Israel, and the Lord will come back. And, and, uh, and so that's, you've got your heavenly Jerusalem coming. He's going to come and reign here on this earth a, a thousand years. Uh, well, that's, that is the position of the futurists. And I agree with him. To me, it's, it's an absurdity to have something that is uh, telling you all the time that it's, that it's soon to be, it's speedily going to take place. They're being persecuted then. Uh, it's written to comfort them then, and then to have to create some artificial situation that has, you know, come through the centuries like that. Here, here's another comment he makes, uh, quoting from a, the uh, uh, another one of the documents of that day. He said, Christianity only became a world religion, our kingdom, to use the biblical term, after it became totally disassociated from Judaism in 70 A.D. In other words, up until 70 A.D., Christianity is not a world religion. It is looked on by Rome as a sect within Judaism. And, and that's all it is. It's just a, a little argument, a little sect within Judaism. Remember what they asked Paul when he went to Rome? What do you know about this this sect or this way? Uh, you know, when, when he goes there, well, that's 60 A.D., and and, and and then you got Jews in Rome uh, what, trying to figure out uh, what, what this thing's all about, you know, about uh, on Christianity. But it would only be when Christianity is totally disassociated with Judaism, after the destruction and downfall of Israel and uh, Jerusalem and the Temple, that Christianity will become a world religion and something that is no longer uh, associated in that sense with the Jews. Okay. Okay. Uh, Let's see, in the 15th chapter, notice some of the statements, uh, uh, all the way through, look at the 14th chapter, verse 12. This calls for the patient endurance on the part of the saints who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Him. So all this persecution. Uh, Verse 7, before that the hour of her judgment has come. Verse 8, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, for all her adulteries. But notice now, all the time Babylon is going to its downfall, the Christians are also suffering. And he said this calls for patient endurance. They're having to flee for their lives. In fact, from Rome's standpoint, most of them are just a bunch of Jews, and and Rome's are, and, and we know Rome is, is out after them also, so it calls for patient endurance on their part. Uh,
1: in the, in 14, that's 144,000. Mm-hmm. Is that the remnant of Israel that accepted Jesus?
0: I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion. Okay, we know who the Lamb is. Uh, with him, 144,000 who had his who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of the rushing waters. Okay, the, no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Okay, these are those who did not defile themselves with the women, for they kept themselves pure and they followed the Lamb wherever he goes, they were purchased obviously it's figurative, right? Now the uh, four thousand. And the Jehovah's Witness, <clears throat> they will go to this and of course they bring all this up to the future. And that hundred and forty four thousand, of course, becomes the the best of the Jehovah's Witness. And uh, and there that's only it. There's hundred and forty four thousand exactly. That's fine. Remember what we said, let them have it. Hundred and forty four thousand, that's right but they all better be virgin men from the 12 tribes of Israel. You, you can't grab the 144,000 and say that is literal and then come to the <laughs> fact that they're virgin men from the 12 tribes of Israel and say that's figurative at all. You can't have it both ways. You?
1: No, you can't have it both you ways. Think that, that's in contrast to Israel being called an adulterer. I mean, uh-huh. you know, these. Th- right. This is the part of Israel that didn't commit adultery, and, mm-hmm. and they've kept uh-huh. themselves pure. Sure, and they're the first. Fruit. Sure,
0: we're not. We're talking about a physical. It's a spiritual thing. That's yeah. exactly. How I many right.
2: times did he do that? Uh, Say so you adulterers.
0: Mm-hmm. And and look at what happens. The way James refers to Christians when they're when they're in the world, you adulterers, adulteresses. Know you not that friendship with the world is enmity with God? But uh, all through the Old Testament, God is uh, Isaiah on several occasions has always referred to his people as adulterers when they, on the one hand, they're supposed to be married to God and then they went into the world. And uh, remember when Hosea preached that uh, God had Hosea go out and marry Gomer and remember Gomer became a prostitute and sold herself into prostitution. And he asked uh, Hosea to go out and buy her back and he went back. And what he was doing, is a story in quotes, He's teaching Hosea how God feels. That the way you felt when your wife went out and sold herself into prostitution is the way God feels when his people go into the world. And and, and then in the third chapter of Jeremiah, he says he divorced the ten tribes of Israel. Uh, in other words, what did they do? They committed adultery. And they wouldn't repent, and God divorced them. Well, in the same way here, again, very good, Mark, uh, You've uh, you've had this city that's being destroyed depicted as an adulterer and then the the people of God is pure and virgins and people that have not been defiled.
1: But that number 144 um, is that meant to depict a complete number? In other uh, words, a uh, one of those one well, of those that number chosen. Well, and it was see. like like all encompassing number, like twelve times twelve. Yeah, I think, uh, well, I've
0: 12,000 from each of, I was, doesn't it do, deal with that again.
2: Back in chapter 7
0: or 8 is when it first starts talking about that, isn't it? All right, let me see. Okay. Right around there. Right, yeah, there it is. So that's, that's, that's where I had it in my mind from. That's good, Mark. Uh, Hugh, turn over to chapter 7 and uh, verse 3. Do no harm the land, the sea, or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of God. And uh, I heard the number of those who were sealed 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000, etc. And so, again, just uh, obviously not literal, but, uh, but yet uh, used in that way because of the 12, uh, 12 apostles picked, 12 tribes. And then uh, the 12,000 used in here. And by the way, this was this use of numbers in this way, very common that if there was a number that had any significance at all, they would use it in ways like this. Uh, uh, 40 is used a number of times, 7 is used over and over. Uh, uh, if my brother sins against me seven times, Jesus says no, even if he sins seven times. 70. Uh, the Lord says, I've got 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Well, obviously this number seven, the, we first read of it in its initial origin is is the creation of the earth. And then on the seventh or seventh day, the Lord rested. And so it, it came to be a number that symbolized completeness uh, and perfection among the Israels. Uh, and then of course here that all I can see is representative, and, and we have we already in other passages have established that spiritual Israel is the people of God that have faith in God. Uh, no better place than Galatians, where Paul is saying the true seed of Abraham is those that have faith like Abraham. Uh, Paul said the true Jew is the one who's been circumcised in his heart. And so spiritual Israel is the heavenly Jerusalem that does not have a literal temple, and he'll get into that a little later on.
1: In 14, down there in, uh, in verse 15, okay. at the end of that, he's, there's an angel that says, "Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come. For the harvest of the earth is ripe." You look back in Matthew 3, where right. where John the Baptist says the he's coming with his winnowing fork in his hand. Right. The axe is now
0: laid at the root of the, of the trees, and the Lord is coming. His winnowing fork is at his hand. Same principle. And all of this was to take place at the end of the age. Right. And then when he talks about the end of the age, he said, again, some of you will be standing or you will not have finished going through But the same the same principle.
1: In it, 15, verse 1, at the end of that, it says, I saw heaven another great marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed.
0: Right. And you have, again, the word seven, the perfect completion.
1: And then back in Thessalonians, you know, Paul says, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath and then uh, in 2 16 it says the wrath of God has come upon them at, r- at last
0: right and then so, right before that in verse 14 he, he identifies the Jews right. as the cause by name uh, you know it's uh, the key all the way through here you can, can you can everybody see that and obviously we're uh, that going through here that to the extent that you can keep those passages in your mind that we've dealt with in Thessalonians and Matthew and Mark and Luke and all these other places and all those Old Testament passages and if you can really visualize Daniel in your mind to the extent that you've got all that in your mind that uh, it, in fact I don't even know how anybody attempts this without that in their mind. Uh, that's why that we when we you know, we talk about getting to the text it is crazy. Uh, there's no way anybody that says they can go and study the text of Revelation without studying Daniel and Ezekiel and Isaiah and uh, and the Gospels and these other passages and then the history at the time. There's just uh, just no way that it, that it can be done. Uh, okay, anybody else want to make any comment on what we've covered uh, so far? And again, obviously we can't hit every verse and, and finish this up on that, but... Uh, uh, that th- th- we can hit the overall tenor of it ok let's get to the 17th chapter uh, uh, Mark will you read uh, a little bit there and start off in the 17th chapter Mark Moore ok do you want me to
2: read the
0: whole thing? Or yeah just start reading and I'll take I'll the pause okay.
2: One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the punishment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters. With her the kings of the earth committed adultery, and the inhabitants of the earth were intoxicated with the wine of her adulteries. Then the angel carried me away in the spirit into a desert. There I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was covered with blasphemous names, and had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was dressed in purple and scarlet and was glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls. She held a golden cup in her hand, filled with the abominable abominable things that had and the filth of her adulteries. This title was written on her forehead. Mystery, Babylon the Great, the Mother of Prostitutes and of the Abominations of the Earth. I saw that the woman was drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus.
0: Okay, Paul's right there. Can you see how perfect now that fits? That uh, you got the woman, the prostitute, the harlot riding the beast. Okay? And uh, she's committed adultery. Uh, by the way, when he talks about sitting on many waters, don't think again of literal waters. A good passage. Hold your place there. Flip over to Jeremiah 51 13. Give you an idea. Jeremiah 51 and 13. Uh, the people of Babylon, if you look at verse 12, people of Babylon, you who live by many waters are rich in treasures. Your end has come. The time for you to be cut off. Babylon didn't live by many waters. You got, you know, this, the river Euphrates uh, flowing down there. And that's where it got its water supply. It's used in the sense that their riches Came from their dealing with all these other people. In other words, they were the force, and they were using all these other places. And so here, with this uh, uh, prostitute, uh, it was the affiliation uh, of Jerusalem with all these pagan people is is the way they derived their power and their and their and their strength and all. And with her, the kings of the earth committed adultery. In other words um, she's supposed to be standing up for God and she's a prostitute. Uh, uh, they they sold themselves to Rome, really, uh, many of the top people of Jerusalem and all. She's nothing but a prostitute. Uh, the angel carried me away in the spirit in the desert. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. And, And so you got this woman being carried by the beast and she's dressed in purples. Purple was, uh, the rich color, uh, you know, the royalty. She held a golden cup in her hand filled with abominable things and the filth of her adulteries. Uh, you you got to be married before you can commit adultery. And this title was written Mystery Babylon of the Great, the mother of prostitutes, abomination of the earth, and then she was drunk with the blood of the saints. Well, uh, remember, what the reference I've got there is Matthew 23, 33 through 39, where Jesus talked about all the, those that they had killed and that the blood of every righteous person he held on that generation. But notice now, she's riding the beast. You've got two powers here. You've got a superior power in the beast and one riding it in the woman, but it's the woman that, at this point that is drunk, and it's the woman, Babylon, the adulterer, who's going to be destroyed. Well, it is Jerusalem, not Rome, that will be destroyed. Jerusalem's gonna be another strong gonna be a strong power for four hundred more years before it will deteriorate. Um, verse seven The angel said to me, Why are you astonished? I will explain to you the mystery of the woman and of the beast she rides. The beast you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss to go to his destruction. So he once was, now is not, this period of time, uh, will come up out of the abyss, and will go to his destruction. The inhabitants of the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the creation of the world, will be astonished when they see the beast. Because he once was, now is not, and yet will come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. In other words, he tell them, you're going to have to think about this and look at things. The seven heads are seven hills in which the woman sits. They are also the seven kings. Five have fallen, one is. The other has not yet come. Okay, if you go back to, again, where exactly you start this would depend on your dating, but if you went back to the first Caesar was Julius. And after Julius was Augustus. After Augustus is Tiberius. After Tiberius is Caligula, after Caligula is Claudius, and then Nero is the sixth one. And the ten horns you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but for one hour will receive authority uh, as kings along with the beast. And they have one purpose, and they will give their power and authority to the beast. And so all these other powers, I don't personally believe it's speaking of a literal ten, but all these other powers, the, the beast will have all authority. They will make war against the lamb, but the lamb will overcome them because he is Lord of lords. And so notice you've got this prostitute riding the beast, drunk with the blood of the saints, is going to be judged. But then you also have this beast that is making war against the Lamb. Well, all of this is going on at the same time. Uh, the Jews are, are doing everything they can to destroy Christianity, and Nero has declared official war uh, against the Christians. It's illegal to be a Christian in the Roman Empire at this point. Uh, then the angel said to me, The waters you saw where the prostitute's sets." are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And got the, again, he's saying, what is he saying? The waters are not literal waters. We went back in the example in Jeremiah 51, 13, but it had reference to the waters are the prostitute sets are the peoples, multitudes, nations, and language. The beast of the ten horns, you set, now notice now, will hate the prostitute. And they will bring her to ruin and leave her naked. And they will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to accomplish his purpose by agreeing to give the beast their power to rule until God's words are fulfilled. The woman you saw is a great city. You, you couldn't say it in a more perfect, perfectly fitting way to what's happened at this time. You know, the, uh, uh, the, the woman, the city, the prostitute. And then the beast that has been used, but then he turns around and he says, the beast will hate the prostitute. So all up until this point, the prostitute has been using the beast, and now the beast hates the prostitute. And so God is going to use the beast here to destroy the prostitute that is a persecuting force against them.
2: When it says the beast, which you saw once was, now is not, and will come up out of the abyss, abyss. I mean, that doesn't make
1: sense to me. Well, this is the one that, same thing. It had the fatal wound, but recovered. I mean, it's, it's, it's referring to exactly
0: uh-huh. the same thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Remember, it said he was fatally wounded, and then he recovered um, and regained himself. See, but at the time that uh, Nero used the Christians for a scapegoat, and Nero was on extremely shaking grounds there was those wanting to take his life and Nero was scared to death for his own life and, and his power base was extremely shaky uh, you know it's interesting in looking uh, all at, at dictators how many times that uh, through history that they will go after a scapegoat who was Hitler's scapegoat? The Jews. Blame them with all the problems and the the depression that Germany was in and all. They be, they became his scapegoat that uh, that he that he used. Uh, uh, Saddam is he's got the Kurds, and the, and the Shiites, and and us. You know he blames all his problems on us. You know we are the the scapegoat, and so Saddam's still a hero in Iraq.
1: You know he's a good example of this. You know with the- he was was not, and is again because back right at the end of the war, you just said that he was done with it. Right. I mean, the, nobody would have thought that he'd have still be around this long. Yeah. but he's. You know, and I, still I think it's good you bring
0: that to and you talk about the difficulty of of looking into the future. You're right. I think you said when you said nobody at the at the end of Desert Storm, and and when you saw that. All that like bombing that took place, and his army mostly destroyed and in disarray. Uh, you can look back and see why that Bush thought it's just a matter of time before they kill him. That they won't tolerate this. They thought the people would turn on him, and and now they we read we look at the news and we just can't believe it. He has never been more popular. He's never been more popular than he is right now. It it just seems like an absurdity, and with Nero. Uh, that uh, you're right, he went to that point and, and he regained himself and then of course eventually in 68 he will commit suicide.
2: Well right, now, right here we have uh, uh, those seven kings we've got that as being literal but then we have the ten horns being figured does that make sense?
0: Well he names the, the kings there uh, I mean on the uh, he gives you uh, the seven or the the seven heads are.
2: Could those ten horns be maybe provincial?
0: Well, or something? Wallace takes it as you know ten provincial things. I don't. From what I've actually read in the history, I just have a hard time coming up with the exactly ten. But it it you know it could be. Uh, but. Uh, I don't he, he, he gives it and he believes it that way, but he doesn't document, you know, he just makes a statement in the way that you said. And when I read the actual history that uh
2: um uh, okay, Well,
0: I don't come up with a just a smooth ten there, you know, on, on the thing. Well
2: those seven hills, I mean, aren't there seven hills around Rome or something like that? It says seven heads or seven hills on which the one says. I've heard that interpretation
0: too. well the same with Jerusalem yeah see Jerusalem uh, set up in the uh, in the hills you know way up uh, you know for protection uh, uh, Rome didn't really set uh, uh, you know in the, in the hills Rome is right uh, low and you know and close to the the ocean and all but you um, Jerusalem actually sets up, you know, in the in the hills and all. <laughs> Anybody else? Okay, in the 18th chapter, we've already looked at it on Babylon, and uh, again, verse 20 of the 18th: Rejoice, saints, apostles, and prophets! God has judged her. No question they're being judged for the way they treated the people of God. Uh, Jesus dealt with this in the 23rd chapter of Matthew, among other places. And verse 2 of chapter 19, True and just are his judgments. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So obviously the judgment is on the prostitute. And uh, that, uh, and he's venged on her the blood of the servants. Jesus has already dealt with this. Uh, remember, we read uh, Matthew twenty-two, one through fourteen, and paralleled it with the nineteenth chapter. Uh, that you've got the judgment, and then you've got the marriage feast following afterwards, and you, it makes a perfect parallel when you read the nineteenth chapter with Matthew twenty-two, uh, one through fourteen. Uh, in chapter 20 where he talks about the uh, he says he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, verse 2 who is a devil and bound him for a thousand years uh, again the word thousand is used uh, in, in uh, Psalms 50 verse 10 it says he is the God of a thousand hills Uh In Deuteronomy 7, and verse 9, he says, I make my covenant for a thousand generations. In each time, it's clear that he's saying everything. You know, it's just, in other words, that God doesn't ever break his covenant. Uh, And uh, in the same thing that God's not just the God of a thousand hills, he's God of of all the hills. And so, uh, he says he bound him for a thousand years, whatever, a period of time. And then after this period of time was ended, uh, he must be set free for a short time. And I saw the thrones which were seated. He gave it authority. And I saw the souls. In other words, the implication is that uh, the persecution will, will cease. You know, that it, it, it's going to come to an end against Christians. But only for a period of time, there will be more persecution to come. In other words, he doesn't want to leave the impression that this severe ordeal that you've gone through, and has come to an end, but that's the end of it. Uh, You know, yeah, the adversary has been bound, the adversary has been defeated, uh, but uh, there will be more adversaries. There will be be more to come. Uh, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony of Jesus, because of the word of God, and they had not worshipped the beast or his image, had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands, they came to life and reign with Christ a thousand years. And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy are those who have part in the first resurrection. The second death has no part. All right, obviously the first resurrection is figurative in some sense. Because if you're talking about this eternal thing you're not going to have a death and then a coming again. So you've got, uh, you've got a, a, a resurrection here and remember, we've, we've established in the Old Testament that it was customary in the prophets that uh, when God's people were defeated and down, that then when the prophet spoke in terms of their, their going back and, and, and overcoming defeat and, and, and becoming strong again, that he depicted it in terms of a literal resurrection. And, and uh, a good example is uh, 37th chapter of Ezekiel. Uh, 26th chapter of Isaiah, 12th chapter of Daniel. In each of those cases you've got a a depiction after God's people have been punished and and beaten down and it looks like they're totally dead. Uh, You have their going back and rebuilding and restoring the city and rebuilding the temple and and all of this depicted by a literal bodily resurrection from the grave as, as they came forth from the grave. And so this is uh, that's their, their heritage uh, he says the second death hath no power on them they will be priests of God and of Christ will reign with him a thousand years for this period of time uh, the people of God will reign with Christ uh, I believe Christ is reigning right now uh, and the Christians are reigning with him and they have reigned all through the centuries the, uh, the kingdom of God has come with power uh, and with the destruction of Jerusalem and the Jewish nation uh, and the ceasing of this persecution, uh, Christianity will go into all the world. And it will eat up, the, philosophically it will eat up the Roman Empire. It will become the official religion of the Roman Empire. And right now, even though we're taking our licks in the United States, and because of a lot of things that are taking place, and, and by the way, Christians making up a smaller percentage of the population. Christianity may be making up a smaller percentage of the population of the United States, but it's not making up a smaller percentage of the world, it's making up a bigger. And whereas it's becoming weaker here, and when this will reverse, you know, we can only speculate on that, it will will reverse itself. But it's becoming stronger in Africa, it's becoming stronger in India, it's becoming stronger in South America, it's becoming stronger in all of the third world countries, and representing more and more a percentage of that population. And Christianity as a whole is the number one religion in the world. In fact, it's the only religion that can be called a truly world religion. And it, despite all of the negative things happening, uh, Christianity is, I really, uh, I can't think of another force for good in the world except Christianity. Maybe you can. Uh, In our own country, uh, when we talk about marriage, it's interesting, I was reading an article the other day in a secular publication, and it said, even now, as bad as it is, that most people in our society literally believe that one man, one woman in marriage, was the best way. That they can they can just look at the dysfunctional families and all. They believe that this is the, the best way to go and everything. Uh, where does this concept come from? It sure don't come from the Muslims. Um, and uh, it's absolutely unique to Christianity. The concept of of one man, one woman, until death do you part is unique to Christianity. At the time Christianity hit the world, the whole world was in polygamy. Uh, a woman was a possession to be owned, and a man could own as many as he could afford. She had no rights whatsoever. She could be bought and sold like property. She could be divorced at will. Jesus changed it. And, uh, and the feminists can holler all they want to, but, but female rights began with Jesus. I mean, he's, he's the one that changed the whole thing. Uh, and it was Christianity that said that you're you're neither male nor female or Jew or Gentile but you're all one in Christ that uh, the the whole force when we look at the family in our country uh, and then contrast that with uh, for example uh, I ran into this statistic by uh, information from a Billy Graham crusade Uh, the divorce rate in our country right now is uh, in the 50's percent, more than 50 percent wind in divorce. Uh, when you have a situation where two people get married, where they are each members of the church, each members of, a, of the same Christian church, and they get married, the divorce rate's 1 in 16. When two people get married who were brought up in Christian homes, and they are Christian, and they've gone to Christian schools. And they're, and they're devout, you know, in the church, the divorce rate is 1 in 400. Uh, uh, and so I'm saying it's uh, that uh, there's just no comparison. And uh, we've got a drug problem in our society. We've got an age problem. The, 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 drug, the only drug problem we have in the church is the people that we're converting to Christianity who are being rehabilitated. Uh, And the age problem is is people who have that who have been converted, you know, but we don't have that problem uh, in in the church Uh, um, Who builds the orphan homes who builds the hospitals? Uh, Who's concerned about feeding the hungry who's concerned about the starving and all of this? It's always been the Christians Uh, Name one charity in the United States supported by the American Atheist Society John Clayton's a former atheist member of the American Atheist Society, and he can't name it. You know, that's, he said, when Clayton is an atheist. He said that's one of the things that, when he was examining both ways and all, that bothered him that, that the atheist did no good whatsoever. It was Christians that, were, that built hospitals. Christians build hospitals. Christians build orphanages. Uh, Christians go in to help out children. Uh, in Rome, they didn't have abortion. If, if you didn't want a child, you exposed him. You just took him out and left him. On some, on somebody, like people drop off dogs today and cats. That's what people used to do to kids. If you didn't want them, you drop them off. Uh, and prostitutes would, uh, or male homosexuals would take them in and use them. Like Nero, for example, took in a little boy and used him. Uh, Christians adopted these children. Christianity comes on the scene and these kids that are being abandoned and dropped off and, and just exposed, Christians are, are the, the, the people that come up with the first orphanages. They're the ones that's going out and getting those kids and adopting them and taking them in their home. I'm saying there has never been a force for good in the world that even begins to look like Christianity. The closest you can show to it is Judaism at all. But the difference between Judaism and Christianity was Judaism was selfish. Uh, they were concerned about Jews. Uh, you know, you could go, you know, where if you weren't a Jew. You know, they, they were concerned about, they did practice these principles among their own and in their own land and all. Uh, but they were very selfish. Uh, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. That was what the Pharisees said. Jesus says, No, you love your enemy too. Uh, that, um, but I'm, but I'm, when this, so when you read about this kingdom going out here and he is reigning with his saints. We can become so obsessed with the bad in our world that we forget that that there is a tremendous amount of good in our world, and the good is caused by Christianity. Uh, where would you be, Hugh, if you weren't a Christian? I mean, if you'd never really come in contact with Christianity, where would any one of us? I know that there are all kinds of things that I believe is wrong, that I would have engaged in. Uh, uh, They talk about, uh, you know, criticizing the person um, that drinks or whatever. Uh, You know, I understand it. Uh, That uh, uh,
1: if you even the Apostle Paul said, if if these things aren't true, just eat, drink, and be merry. I would die. Sure. Sure. What what sense is there to
0: life? Uh, What have you got except to eat, drink, and be merry? Uh, You you can't say, well, doing good has its own reward there is a sense in which that's true but there's a sense in which doing real good brings consequences I mean how many times do you bring consequences when you stand up for what's right uh, so you, you there, is, there is actually persecution many times to standing up for what is right ok uh, he culminates in the 22nd chapter about the, you know, the tree of life and wanting all of this to come, uh, verse 7, Behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps uh, uh, these words and the prophecy of this. The time is near, etc., coming soon, etc. Uh, just like he started. Referring to an event that is, uh, that is coming soon. Uh, by the way, in the 20th chapter, uh, uh, Wallace does an excellent job on that and you read the context there's nothing said there about Jesus coming to this earth or Jesus reigning on this earth Jesus, his kingdom is spiritual and he does have his reign but his reign is the, those people he said the seed of the kingdom is what His word and uh, wherever Jesus has his reign among all those individuals on the earth that his word has been sown into their hearts. And, and he reaches fruit through those individuals.
1: So the new Jerusalem is the, the new order of
0: things. Right. In fact, look at this in chapter 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first earth is passed away. And the new, the holy city and the new Jerusalem come down out of heaven. And then he says the result, verse 3, Now the dwelling of God is with them men, he will live with them, they will be his people, and God himself will be their God, he will wipe away from their, every tear from their eyes, they will be no more death, no mourning, no crying. Nor pain. notice, for the old order of things has passed away. So the, the new Jerusalem, uh, the new heaven, the new earth, is, is a Hebrew parallelism with the old order of things has passed away. And that's the way it's used in the Old Testament, Isaiah 65-66. Uh, when he, over there, when he talks about uh, the judgment, uh, the downfall of God's people, and then the coming back, rebuilding the city, it talks about new heavens and, and new earth. And you have the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. It doesn't have a temple. Uh, there's somewhere in here that says that, you know, the God himself would be, where's that exact verse? Oh, here it is, verse 22, chapter 21. I did not see a temple in the city. Uh, remember Jesus said the temple will not the city will not come, the kingdom will not come with observation, so you can say lo here it is, or lower there it is, the kingdom of God is within you. The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb is its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon. It's not talking about heaven. Uh, the church is the is the Christians. God's temple is our body. And and God dwells in us. And so we're we're speaking of a of a spiritual city all the way through. Uh, verse twenty six: The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does not what is shameful and deceitful. Uh, in other words, that how do you get into the city of God? How is impurity kept out? We, Jesus. Okay, and we repent. Right? We then no you, no sinners coming in. I mean, there, there may be you and I may have them on our church rows. You know, they're there. But from the the, the spiritual city, there's one that's been circumcised in heart. Uh, it's only the person that has repented of his sins, put his trust in Christ, and has the remission of his sins in Christ. They're the only ones that will come in. Then there. Remember the Matthew 22. The, the the person that tried to, those that tried to come in and their garments were unclean and the way you got your garments clean was that they were cleansed in the blood of the Lamb.
1: This is in comparison to Judaism where all you had to do was be a the descendant of Abraham. Really. Right,
0: right. And I think in that in Matthew 22 he's talking to the Jews, tells them their city's going to be burned. Uh, the Jews are the one that's trying so hard to enter the kingdom of God, not the Romans, and, and they're not coming in because they're they're dirty, and their garments are, are filthy. They have refused the blood of the lamb. Okay. Um. By the way, I was uh, I don't know if any of you have the amplified Bible. Uh, no interpretation, but amplification on the words. Uh, if you want to add it to your library, it's good for reading with any of the books, including Revelation, because you get an amplification on the full meaning of the words. It'd be like uh, sitting there with the Vines Expository Dictionary looking up all your keywords at the same time you're reading. And I'll give you an example, like on Revelation, uh, here in the first chapter. Uh, His servants, the things must shortly and speedily... Come to pass in their entirety. In other words, he's giving you the full sense of the Greek word there is that it must shortly, in other words, not just speedily going to unfold, but it's shortly and then speedily going to come to pass in its entirety.